welcome back to the Road to Wealth podcast. This is your host, Justin Knackpill, and I want to thank you for clicking on this episode. I know it's been a few weeks and I've been kind of off the radar, but uh, focusing on some work stuff um, as well as uh, it's back to school season for the family. So trying to get those priorities in place and excited to deliver this next episode. And on today's episode, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Jordan Grummet. He is a former internal physician doctor as well as currently an award-winning podcaster and newly minted author for the book, Taking Stock. I've known him for his work on the Earn and Invest podcast and all his involvement in the financial independence and retire early space. But what I really appreciated with this conversation with Jordan was his approach to writing this book, Taking Stock, and how his experience as a hospice doctor taking care of the dying really changes our approach and psychology around money. So I want to thank Jordan for coming on and feel free to buy his book and looking forward to hearing your feedback on this podcast. Again, please feel free to leave a rating and review on your podcast player and find me and social at the Road to Wealth podcast on both Instagram and on Twitter. Hey, Jordan, how are you? I'm so excited to be hanging out with you in person today. This is uh, a first, and I want to uh, welcome the listeners to Mr. Uh, Dr. Jordan Grummet, a.k.a. Doc G, from the Earn and Invest podcast, and newly minted author of the book, Taking Stock. As of today, August 2nd, it is launch day. How do you feel? Nervous, anxious, excited. Uh, I didn't sleep real well last night, but... In a good way. It was just can't wait to see that this book gets out into the world and that people get to read it and hopefully it affects their life. You know, I was very privileged that Jordan sent an advanced copy um, for the for being part of the ground team. And this book really struck a chord with me because of uh, Jordan's work as a hospice doctor, um, but also just having that perspective of seeing the dying and how this relates to you know many of us that listen to, to this podcast around financial independence. Um, you know, Jordan, where I want to start um, around this is um, really what motivated and, and inspired you to begin writing this book. So there are a few reasons, really. One is I discovered financial independence, and I did a deep dive into the financial independence retire early movement, and I realized immediately that this idea of how you become financially independent is fairly straightforward. There are set ways for you to gain wealth, for you then to invest that money for it to compound, and for you to reach a number which you feel comfortable with is financial independence. What I was struggling with is what next? So now we have the tools. Now we have the know-how. What does that mean to our lives? And how do we kind of go from the basic finance 101 to the 201? I started a blog and a podcast to really delve into these ideas. And at the same time, I was pulling away from work because I was burned out as a physician. I found the one part of work that I loved was being a hospice physician, which was taking care of the terminally ill and dying. And I started to see some answers to those difficult financial questions in my patients as I sat with them and talked about their lives when they were reviewing their lives and what they needed to come to terms with before they died. And so the book really is the meeting of those two different parts of my life and how I saw that they actually reflected on each other. That, that's the easy answer. The harder answer is that I always wanted to traditionally publish a book and 
my confidence was flagging. And because I was in this financial independence community, because I was writing and talking about personal finance all the time, I developed a friendship with a guy named Grant Sabatier. And he had read some of my writing and he looked at me and he said, you need to write this book. Uh, this is the time for it. And this is unique. And this is something we don't have in the financial independence community. So literally, I don't know if I would have had the confidence or the push to go out and do this thing that was deeply important to me, but I had been avoiding it, just like I talk about in the book, how we avoid things that are important to us because they're scary. But because I had created the sense of community, I now had someone on my side that was saying, hey, you should do this. But not only that, he had written a book before, he knew about agents, he knew about publishers. So he gave me some of the motivation, but he also came with a huge amount of knowledge, um, which made this possibility much closer to reality. And thanks for sharing that, Jordan, because uh, you know there's a lot of milestones that we go on in life, um, many of which that we had goals from the get-go, and you really talk about identity. We're going to get into the book, um, but I, where I also want to start, Jordan, is um, you talk a lot about your own personal life and your relationship with your father. Um, can you share a little bit with the listeners, you know, h- how uh, your relationship with your dad, but ultimately, you know, what happened to him and kind of your trajectory? Um, getting into healthcare? So my father was a physician. He was an oncologist, which means he takes care of people or took care of people with cancer. And when I was seven and he was 40, he developed a sudden headache, uh, which was a brain aneurysm. And while he was rounding at the hospital, he collapsed and died shortly thereafter. And that was right at that age where I idolized my father. I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to look like him. I wanted to walk like him. I wanted to act like him. So that was the earliest reckoning for me in this whole idea of career. My dad was a doctor. He died. I wanted to be like him, so I was going to be a doctor. And interestingly enough, I don't ever remember a time in life where I ever thought of doing something else. And so being a doctor was a huge part of my identity growing up, and it became a part of me which was wonderful until I got to that point in medicine where I started to burn out and started looking outside of this identity of being a doctor, trying to figure out who I am and and what comes next and what do I do with myself, and realized I hadn't developed other aspects of my life or identity. So on one side, I was rejecting this identity that I had held onto so tightly, not just because it gave me a sense of purpose and meaning, but also it was one of those last connections I still had with my father. Uh, But I realized that I needed a change and that I was much more than the sum total of my profession. And uh, that created difficulty in my life. It created a lot of stress and anxiety trying to figure out who I am and and what has meaning to me. Knowing the fact that, and we we talked a little bit in pre-show with Jordan, um, you know, him and I being fellow fathers and and husbands, um, are there certain questions that you wanted to maybe ask your dad um, if you were still around? You know, the funny thing is I've had the privilege of looking through some of his things that my mom had packed away, and I saw some of his notebooks, and it was so clear that he had an innate love of the science. And so it'd be amazing to have this conversation to get his take on how he loved medicine, because it was something I realized that I didn't love as time went went on. And it would have been wonderful to have that conversation with him. Ultimately... I think it would have been wonderful to get his blessing to also leave medicine. 
it would have been wonderful to sit and have that conversation and maybe realize that while it was many things to him, it wasn't those same things to me. I never got that chance to individuate from my father, right? So I think this happens to a lot of us. We idolize our parents, but at some point we grow into adults and we start looking at ourselves and looking at our parents and saying, okay, I'm different. My mom or dad, they're good at this or they're interested in this and I'm good at something else or I'm interested in something else. Because my dad died when I was young, I never got that chance to kind of cleave that part of my own identity, which made it harder when I finally did make the decision to leave medicine because, you know, I didn't have my dad to run it by. I didn't have him to pat me on the shoulder and say, that's all right, Jordan, you know, you don't have to be me and you're accomplished and wonderful just as you are. Uh, And so I had to provide some of that for myself. And I think that was a conversation I really missed having. How did you navigate that personally for yourself? You know, it was a lot of deep reflection. I was lucky when my father died, I was at that point where I still looked very logically at life because I was pretty young. So when my dad died, I looked at my mom and said, okay, what happens if something happens to you? So it was very logic, very straightforward. As I reached my teenage years and even college, I really came to terms with this idea of losing my father. I really went through it at a young age. I'm a pretty introverted person, so I really questioned how I felt about it and what it meant to me. So in a lot of ways, I got past some of that emotional baggage in the beginning. My wife laughs. We met when I started medical school, and I talked to her about my father on our first date. And so obviously this wasn't something that... I was hiding or that was wounding me and I couldn't talk about it. It was just part of my identity and I accepted it as that. So I'd come to terms with my father dying, but it was the next step to realize that I could leave medicine. And so how did I come to terms with that part? I really had to separate out this fact that just because I may not be a doctor anymore, because I may not cling to that identity anymore, doesn't mean that I didn't love my father, that they weren't close, that he didn't pass on all these important qualities and traits to me that I now hopefully flourish in me as an adult. So I had to let myself off the hook and realize that I can't live in someone else's shadow. If he had still been alive, I would have realized that probably earlier, that I shouldn't live in a shadow. Since he died, it might have taken me longer. So A lot of introspection, a lot of writing, a lot of mourning and coming to terms with, in a sense, I experienced my father's death when I was seven, but I did that as a kid. When I left medicine, I experienced his dying in a very different way when I let go of that part of my identity that related to him. Uh, But I did that in a very adult way. Um, So it was easier to talk through it and to think about it and to try to figure out how it fit into the puzzle of my life. And thanks for sharing that, Jordan. Um, you know, I know you from the Earn and Invest podcast and you know, all the work you do within the FI community, um, but many people don't know you for um, your history as being a hospice doctor. Can you talk a little bit about not only that history, um, but how, that, how you got into t- either talking and communicating about money as a physician? So it's funny. First and foremost, let's talk about the hospice piece. Dealing with the death of my father obviously meant that this whole idea of helping people with death, trying to understand it, trying to understand the role it plays in our life was very normal to me because it was something I went through as a kid. 
So when I started in medical school, the first thing I did in my first week of medical school is I volunteered in the inpatient hospice. This was life telling me what I should do for a living. And of course, I didn't listen and I ignored it and eventually went into general internal medicine. It took me years and years to come back to hospice. The money part's interesting. I don't think I would have ever got into the money part if I had been satisfied with my life as a physician. But as I got more and more burned out as a physician, I started looking for a way out. Now, I was lucky because I was born to two parents who financially modeled great behavior, right? So my parents saved tons of money. They invested. They owned real estate. So I copied what they did as an adult, but I had no idea what I was really doing in 2014, fortuitously, Jim Dolly, the white coat investor, sent me his book to review for my medical blog because I had been writing for years about medicine in a medical blog. And I read his book and it gave me the vocabulary to understand a lot of the good habits my parents gave to me. And I realized immediately that I was financially independent, that I could leave medicine instead of being joyous about this that caused a lot of anxiety And the anxiety pushed me to think more about finances and what they meant in my life. It was kind of the catalyst or the impetus to do that deep dive into finances and try to now relate what to do. Because I had this life. I had this identity. It wasn't fitting me. I thought money was the problem. I realized I had enough money. So then I kind of went down that rabbit hole of, okay, now I have enough money. How do I actually utilize that money to live my best life? And so that really started the conversations that ended up being my blog, Diversify, and the podcast, Earn and Invest, and eventually this book, Taking Stock. So we're going to get into the book. Um, what were some of those early days when you talked about you know, the white coat, white coat investor writing about you know, money through Diversify and then even starting that, that blog? Well, can you tell the listeners how those early days were? So the early days were really introspective, and I was really trying to feel my way through this. So... In different times in my life, I've realized that writing is one of the best ways to sort through complicated feelings. So in 2014, I read Jim Daly's book. I realized I'm financially independent. I had no idea what to do with that. I wasn't ready to walk away from medicine yet because that was incredibly anxiety-provoking. So I did a few things. One is I immediately started to get rid of those things in medicine that were worst, right? The most friction. I call it in the book, The Art of Subtraction. But Pretty much I said, well, I'm financially independent. I'm not ready to walk away from medicine, but what can I do to make my life easier? Can I get rid of some nights, get rid of some weekends, get rid of some responsibilities? So that was the first thing. But then the next thing was to concentrate on what kind of life do I really want to live? And for me, that was the daily meditation of writing. And so that's why I started my blog, a blog in which I would write almost every day for quite a long time. And it was my online diary. It kept me on task about thinking deeply about these issues of money and life. And not only that, but once I put it into writing, I almost had to follow through. Um, So it was my accountability partner. And that was extremely helpful because I went from deep introversion and thought to writing out and clarification to eventually action. And I found in my life, that's like a really good pattern. That's how I get from A to B. A lot of times we talk about knowing that we want to make a change in our life, but getting stuck and stumbling and actually doing it. So for me, I know it starts with thinking, next comes writing, and usually last comes action. And that works in my life. Uh, that's beautiful. And th- the way you're describing it, it kind of reminds me, Jordan, of the, the first part of your book where you talk about identity, purpose, and connections. Do you feel that the way you describe that, you know, that 
trying to find yourself and, and writing? Was that you trying to exercise the piece that you wrote in the book about identity? Most definitely. I mean, I think a big part of our problem, a big hypothesis in the book is we don't do that purpose and identity work early enough. And so often we find ourselves stumbling through life, hitting roadblocks, not understanding why. And at some point, if you're lucky enough, if you're introspective enough, you realize, oh, I got to go back, do that purpose, identity work, figure out who I am. And then I can figure out the best way above, beyond, behind, around these roadblocks. But until you understand who you are, it's really difficult to understand the tools you have to then go conquer life. Um, And so for me, that was the process. That's how I came back and said, okay, I've been putting off this work too long. I really got to start working on purpose and identity because it's going to help me figure out the path forward. You talked about this in the book too, Jordan, um, and I was certainly guilty of it. I'm, you know, it, in you know, kind of mid-career, and you talked about, you know, if if you start asking these hard questions of yourself, of like who you are, you tend to lean into like, well, I'm in technology sales, I'm in medicine, um, I'm a father. Take us through, you know, your structure or or framework for for that part of the book. So I I think what we're really talking about is purpose, identity, and connections. And there's some real concrete exercises you can do for each of these things to try to start figuring out who you are and what's important to you. For purpose, I often talk about the visualization of thinking of yourself on your deathbed and bemoaning what you regret not having the energy, courage, or time to pursue, and then start bringing those things into your life earlier. So that's purpose. What you're talking about now is identity, and my favorite exercise for identity is to say the statement or ask yourself the question, I am, and then fill in the blank. And just as you, the first time I did this, what came out was I am a doctor, which is so funny because as I've gone further, I realized that's the identity that actually wasn't fitting, but it's the first thing that came to mind. Most of us identify by our profession, which is fine, but it doesn't really say who we are on the inside. So then you have to dig deeper, and it's part of the process. you got to ask yourself this question over and over again. The next thing most people reach for are their family relations, right? I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son. All of that, again, describes important parts of us, but doesn't really tell you who we are. The next one a lot of people grab for is achievements. So for me, it was, you know, I am a Plutus Award winner for the Earn and Invest podcast. Again, something I'm really proud of gets closer, right? Because now we're starting to talk about podcasting and achievement that I won for podcasting. But when I really asked myself this question, I finally came to, I am a podcaster, a writer, a public speaker that kind of coalesced into, I am a communicator. And so that's really the process is you have to dig deep. And what I always tell people is it's not only about who you are today, but what do you aspire to be? Like when you dream, who do you see yourself as? Answering those questions is like the beginning of figuring out identity. And if, and if that doesn't work for you, then you got to go to family and friends, people who know you, and, and ask them, like, how do you see me? Who do you see me as? And start kind of collecting this data. This is hard work. Um, it can be difficult, especially when you start realizing that what you thought your identity was isn't really related to what's important to you. And then you have to go back and say, oh, these are the things that are important to me and I haven't built an identity around them. And that can be disconcerting, but it also can be quite powerful. It certainly was in my life and I think it would be in a lot of other people's lives too. It's interesting because, you know, we're currently in 2022 or 
kind of in a down market and I've seen commentary online and even friends and family that are like, oh, I can't um, retire yet because, you know, I'm going to give it another year. The, uh, the other year syndrome or um, they completely place their identities to who they are professionally. I've been really trying to crack this code of using your framework as a way to, to do that. What would you say to those individuals that are completely frankly, just typecasted in who they are professionally and haven't done that deep work. So I think the first thing we have to do, the first step is to do that deep work. So we have lots of considerations, lots of worries. I think we have to take the financial stuff and briefly put it on the side, right? Because you can't figure out what you're going to do financially and then figure out who you are. The purpose and identity work actually is hard enough. So what I always tell people is, Let's give ourselves a little bit of space with the financial stuff, assuming that it's holding up for now. Let's leave it there. And let's start asking those difficult purpose and identity questions. Getting down to purpose and identity can take months, sometimes take years. And it's a practice that you have to really think about. You have to do some of these exercises. You really have to get in touch with it. Just because you're getting into purpose and identity doesn't mean that you have to completely change your life. Like you may find your purpose and identity are something like mine, being a communicator, a podcaster, what have you, and yet you're spending your day doing tech. That doesn't mean you have to abandon tech. It just means that now you have a sense of purpose and identity. Let's then go to our financial lives and start building that in. For some people, that means saying, I'm going to work this tech job for five more years so I can make a lot of money so that I can stop doing that and start doing the stuff that has purpose for me. For other people, the answer is, okay, maybe I'm going to go to half time in my tech job. It's going to take me 20 years to retire, but I'm going to enjoy life a lot more. And I'm going to use that extra time to start looking at my purpose and identity now. Maybe for the last group, the answer is I'm dropping my tech stuff completely because this company is going to pay me $50,000, $75,000 a year to be a podcaster for their business. And that has real purpose and meaning for me. And I happen to have the luxury of being able to leave this thing that I don't like and do something that I do. None of those answers are particularly right. They're just different solutions to how to bring purpose, identity, and connections into your life today. And a big mistake we make is people hear my story and they say, well, you found out you were financially independent and then you brought in all this purpose, identity, and connections. It's easy for you to say, oh, use the art of subtraction when you're already financially independent. But my argument would be that the smarter way is to start doing this at the beginning of your career, being intentional about the decisions you make today. Money is one tool, but we have lots of other tools. When you're young, you have boundless energy. You have passions. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you don't have kids. So you have some tools there that a middle-aged guy like me doesn't have. How could you start using those tools to be more purposeful with purpose, identity, and connections? How can you start bringing that into your life early, even if you have very little money? And I, I think we have to be very thoughtful about that. You know, one thing we... Uh, that this podcast and obviously yours, you know, it's a, the demographic is the financially independent the fire movement. Um, you took an interesting take in your book of you know what the fire movement gets wrong. Can you can you share that with the listeners? I think the ideas behind financial independence are wonderful, and even behind retire early. The problem is, I think the movement, especially in the beginning, really got bogged down in fear. It was fear I wouldn't have enough money fear that I would retire and run out of money. 
um, and often fear that I wouldn't live a good life. But the problem with that is we use those fears to focus on money and net worth, which in my mind is a tool, not a goal. So we're kind of focusing on a false goal. And by doing that, we're actually getting farther and farther away from our purpose and identity, which is interesting because, again, the idea behind financial independence is to live a life where you fill as much of your time as possible with things that are meaningful to you. But instead, especially a lot of those early fire practitioners were so afraid of not having enough money that they spent all their time thinking about money, which is exactly the opposite of what we want. I mean, go to any financial independence forum. How much time do we spend talking about safe withdrawal rates? Like, is it 4% or 3.5% or 3%? How many people do you know who are part of the financial independence movement who hit fire and then they want fat fire and then they hit fat fire but they're not going to retire because there's still this lucrative consulting job and there's still one more year syndrome and there's still all the reasons to keep making money in their side hustles and all this kind of stuff. When you focus on the fear, you concentrate on the wrong things and it actually stops you from looking at the more important things. And I think while the philosophy behind fire is right, it can go too far. And we just have to be careful. Like fire is not the answer. It's living a life of purpose and identity. So I know plenty of examples of people who are in such a rush to retire early that they saved up just enough money to leave work, but then they went home and they couldn't afford any of the luxuries they had before. So someone used to clean their house. Now they got to clean their house themselves. Someone used to do their lawn. Now they got to do the lawn themselves. Some of these people don't like doing their lawns. They don't like cleaning their toilets. Wouldn't it be better maybe to spend a few hours in the office doing something that's mediocre compared to being quote unquote free, but spending your time doing things at home that you'd rather not be doing? And so I think we have to be really thoughtful about these trade-offs. The goal actually is not financial independence. The goal is not retire early. The goal is to live a life of meaning and purpose. In this case, let's use our finances to get us there faster and better and easier. But let's not confuse what the ultimate goal is. It, it's funny too because you know we, we've been you know friends in our community that um, have communicated that they you know they're, they're saving seventy five percent to to be liberated and to be a creative you know uh, a creative entrepreneur. Um, yet you know through that process they may find out that you know it's going to be a lot more challenging. Or to your point, like they can't live the same life that they once did as they were working their traditional nine to five. Um, it's funny how fear and uncertainty and your book and the concept of death, Jordan, has kind of weaved its, its, its way in. When people find out that they're dying, what is their immediate visceral reaction? So obviously the visceral reaction is mourning and fear. But what comes right after that actually is it gives you the freedom to let go of all of the societal pressures. Everything that was expected of you, whether that's from friends or family or society, all that you're told is what you're supposed to want. In that moment, you're given the freedom to drop all that and actually to come to terms with what you really do want. And that part, that one little part in this crappy situation where you find out you're going to die is magical. And that's why we often see people at the end of life really come to terms with what was important to them. A lot of times people do have things that they want to accomplish, even if they only have weeks or months left. 
And that's because they're finally given the freedom to actually aspire towards what's truly important to them. My argument, of course, is what if we had that freedom much earlier? What if we started doing these life reviews that hospice patients do at a much earlier age? Why wait till we have a terminal illness? Jordan, you talk a lot in the book about living a full life. How have your patients defined that term for themselves? Well, what's amazing about this is everyone has a different definition, right? So for me, being a full life might be being a podcaster and a book writer. Um, For someone else, you know, it might be a community organizer. For someone else, it might be having a modern art collection. I don't think we can define that for other people. All we can do is encourage them to be thoughtful about what that is for them. Um, So I've seen people define purpose in so many different ways. I love to talk about one of my patients I talk about in the book, Ernesto. For him, purposeful was climbing Mount Everest. And so it was something he took the time to do in his 20s, which was so important when he was diagnosed in his 40s with leukemia because he had done something that had great meaning and purpose to him. Ironically, he never made it to the top of Everest because the weather changed. Um, But the fact that he went and pursued this purposeful thing is what's important. That's what's important to him. To me, what's important is having these amazing conversations, being a communicator. To me, that's what makes life rich. Um, But it's different for each person. How would you define a fulfilled life for you? So for me, it's funny. We use this word fulfillment. In my book, I I, I talk about purpose, identity, and connections. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he talks about self-actualization. People who study happiness and money talk about um, life satisfaction or emotional well-being, but they're really all the same thing, this idea of some type of contentedness or what's meaningful for us. So the way I've defined it is what's meaningful for me is to be involved in what I call the climb. And so what is the climb? The climb is doing something that has purpose and meaning for you in which you enjoy the process, but also feel like you're making some headway or improvement. I'll give you a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Podcasting for me is something that's very meaningful to me, right? And it helps me feel content in my life. If I just look at podcasting and look at a big audacious goal, I want a million downloads every month on my podcast. That's not something I can really control, right? This big goal is something that's mostly out of my hands. I mean, I can make a better podcast. I can market it better. But whether it ever gets to that level or not, I don't know. I'm never going to know. So I think if we concentrate on those big audacious goals, it actually doesn't make us amazingly happy. And if we do get to that million downloads, we all of a sudden get panicked that, A, those million people are going to stop listening to us unless we kick up our game, or B, all of a sudden it's not so gratifying and we want 2 million downloads a month. So that's the problem with these big audacious goals. But what if we flip that around and say, for me, podcasting unto itself, when I am sitting with someone having these amazing conversations, that's incredibly joyous for me. And if all that I accomplish is having these amazing conversations if all that I accomplish is this process of being a podcaster, that'll be enough because that makes life meaningful for me. On top of that, I like this idea of feeling like you're making headway and moving forward. So maybe I'm having better conversations that I find a way to define that. 
maybe I do look at downloads instead of going for a million a month. I say, look, I'm getting a thousand downloads this month. Let's go for a thousand one hundred next month or a thousand fifty small incremental changes instead of these big audacious goals. So what contentment looks like is having these climbs these things that you enjoy the process of doing and feeling like you're making a little headway towards them. And I think people who are truly happy have at least one of these climbs in their life, but some people have many. And that's what keeps them busy. And that's what they enjoy. And that's when they wake up in the morning, they wake up with the excitement of what am I going to do today? And and what am I going to discover? Um, a quote that sticks out from your book, Jordan, um, that I've been trying to subscribe to i've actually wrote it out a post-it note near my <laughs> my bed man is uh we are dying from the moment we are born how do you interpret that line for yourself so i think we need to keep this idea present with us that death the active act of dying of death is a moment but in a sense, because time passes and you can never get it back, we are living our death every day. Every day, a day passes that we can't get back. Time happens no matter what we do. So this idea that we are dying from the day we are born just means that we're in the midst of a progression and we should be mindful of that because too many of us put things off because they're scary or difficult or we don't want to think about them. Or better yet, I believe we truly put things off because these scary things remind us that life is finite. And if we, you know, stick our pole in the ground and say, we're going to work on this now, what we're really saying is life is finite and I may not live forever, ever, so I better start doing the important things now. And it's really uncomfortable to do that. So instead, we put them off. We deny death. We say, Let's not do it now. It's too difficult. We can always do it later. But those who walk around in life realizing that they're dying from the day they're born realize that there's no time like today and that the important things we should work on now as opposed to waiting till later. What do you feel is the biggest lesson your patients have taught you? I mean, there's so many, but I think I would still come back to the hypothesis of the book is instead of waiting you have enough money, you have enough achievements, instead of waiting until your career is where you want it to be, mm -hmm. we have to start thinking about the important things now. Purpose, identity, and connections, that's what makes life good for us. And we should be doing it from day one as opposed to waiting until I get to some goal, some high watermark that all of a sudden is going to allow us to start working on these things. It's funny too, because you know us in the five movement or the financial independence movement. There's always this debate of the math. Like you know, Jordan talked about it, right? You know, the, the safe withdrawal rate, sequence of return. Uh, here are the the mechanisms and of, of an IRA or a Roth IRA. But we never talk about these things. These things that matter, such as the substance of our lives. Um, and, and Jordan had an interesting. Uh, you, you had an interesting thing at the end of your book of your whole perception of death. And it's from these years of being a hospice doctor. But you took an interesting take. For, for me, you know, death is still very much a very, you know, scary thing. But you took, you have a different perspective on death. Can you share that with the listeners? So before I was a hospice doctor, I, like everyone else, thought that death was a scary, uncomfortable, quote unquote, bad thing. Mm -hmm. 
The thing about it, though, is I've been real present for many deaths now. And actually, death is often peaceful, especially for those people who are peaceful in life, and especially for those people who did ultimately learn how to pursue purpose, identity, and connections. There's no reason to fear death. Um, we have these amazing medicines and tools nowadays to make it physically comfortable. I think what people will struggle with as life comes to an end is the emotional issues. But the beautiful thing about the emotional issues is we can start working on those now. So I am way more comforted about the dying process and death than I ever was before. I certainly don't fear it now, which I did before I kind of got into hospice and palliative care. Thank you for that. Um, well, with that, Jordan, um, I think it is time to go into the lightning round. So if, if that's okay with you. Yes, of course. Okay, excellent. So we're going to do some, some, some layup questions. So um, in your budget with your, with your partner, what do you and your partner spend the least amount per month? The least amount? Um, I would say mostly on things. So we spend money on food. Mm -hmm. We spend money on experiences. But believe it or not, like I almost never buy things for myself. My wife always gets mad at me because my clothes are tattered. I wear my clothes until they're almost done. I mean, most of the T-shirts I wear are from conferences I went to and they were free. So I spend, me personally, I spend incredibly little on things. And I'd say my wife and kids don't much either. Um, we definitely spend more on transportation. We spend more on food. We spend more on housing, but not on things per se. Okay. Well, that goes to the next question. What do you and your partner and your, and your wife um, spend the most on per month? We spend on food. No question about that. Like we go out, like to go out to nice restaurants and buy higher quality food to make at home. Um, we spend on vacations. Like I have no problem dropping a, a good deal of money on a vacation. Um, I've really loosened the strings on some of that. Like the, you know, the beautiful thing about financial independence is you know, we got to this point where we're like, okay, based on our current spending, we can live forever on our savings. But I still do some work. My wife still does some work. So all that kind of money we make extra from there is just gravy. So I've been trying to be really open with this idea of spend that money. Like, yeah. pay the extra money. Like, do the extra thing and just accept it. So I think vacations is a big one. What was the most extravagant vacation that you can share? Oh, well, recently, not that long ago, I think it was during Christmas, um, we did about seven or eight days at a really, really nice resort in Mexico. Um, and, you know, when you travel during Christmas, it's exceedingly expensive. It's like double what it normally right. was. The plane tickets were over $1,000 each for all four of us. Um, we spent a lot of money on that trip, but I'll tell you, every minute of it was worth it. And, uh, I love going to Mexico. I love going with the kids. The kids are getting to an age where they're getting older. We just don't have as much time with them as, mm -hmm. as we, we used to have. So uh, that felt really extravagant and really nice. Awesome. Uh, here's a fun question. Uh, as a fellow Chicagoan, is deep dish pizza? Oh, yeah, yeah. Deep dish is definitely better than thin crust. <laughs> the problem is, I hate to say this, it's really too bad, is as I've gotten older, I've gotten more dairy intolerant. So I don't usually do any pizza anymore. Um, but in my younger days, a uh, good deep dish pizza was the way to go. Okay, fair enough. Um, what many listeners don't know is that, um, and I, I heard this from a previous podcast you were on, Jordan, that you used to collect fine art. Correct. Um, can you share with the listeners a piece and the artists of if you had to uh, relate a piece to 
the book Taking Stock? What piece and the artist is it and why? Interesting. Um, my mind jumps not to a specific piece, but an artist. When we first started collecting art, my wife is Iranian, and there are some really great Iranian figurative painters where they paint figures with lots and lots of color um, and some with instruments, etc. And so I've always been in love with these really figurative colorful paintings and so the the person i first fell in love with was an artist called hesam h-e-s-s-a-m and we have a number of his pieces and there's just something free and beautiful about his paintings um there's a freedom maybe of purpose in them there's a lightness um the figures seem at peace and seem to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. So if I was to relate it to the book, that would probably be the closest I could come. Um, but to name one specific piece, I mean, I don't even remember the names of the pieces. I'll put Hassam in the, uh, in the show notes so people can check it out as well. Um, and I have two last questions in relation to the book, Jordan. Um, what has been the biggest misconception with writing a book? All right. This is horrible actually. Um, there's a difference between writing a good book and writing a book that sells well. So books that sell well are written by people with huge platforms and usually have a catchy idea or catchy title or are written by someone else, not necessarily the person who's written as the art author. That's a whole different thing than writing a really good, solid, meaningful book, which may or may not sell. So what you're always looking for if you're an author is to have the lightning, that you happen to have both, right? You want something that's a little bit catchy, that's a little bit exciting, that gets generally people interested. But then you want to do the part that not every book has, which is actually write a really well-written book. And especially with nonfiction, um, and I always bump up against this, I feel a certain lyricism and a certain love of words. And I think most nonfiction writers maybe don't necessarily always wax as poetic as I like to in my writing. And I bump up against that because it's my preferred way of writing and telling stories. Uh, but it doesn't always go with more of the dry money books, which are a lot more logical, a lot more straightforward. And that's just not how I write. It's not how I think. Um, and so, yeah, you, you have to be thoughtful about these things. But ultimately, for me... I wanted to write the best book I could, regardless if it sold or not. I'm hoping that it sells quite a bit too, but um, again, well-sold books aren't necessarily well-written books. Very. Th th thank you for sharing that. And the last question in regards to the book, what has been the most rewarding part with writing this book? The most rewarding part is having it get out there and start hearing people's reactions. Um, when you write, you write in isolation, and often the process from idea to published book is at least two years. And so that's a very lonely process, and it's a hard process. Often you write, and then you send it to your agent, or you send it to your publisher, and they tell you it's all wrong, and you have to rework it. Then you send it to your editor, and they tear it apart. And so it's this really lonely process. It's very introspective, and it's very isolating. 
But then if you're lucky enough to make it to the other side of that, you get to put that book out there and hopefully affect people's lives. And so to know that I put something out there that someone read and then changed their life or thought about something differently or that it, it was what they needed to read at the time they were in their life, that's amazing. And uh, I've really tried to change my intentions as I've gone further and further into this process of letting go of the popularity, letting go of the sales, and thinking more about how can I get this book into people's hands who it has the potential to really help them at the moment in life they're at. And that intention, intentionality really changes how I've looked now at the process because um, I want to get the book into people's hands. I, w- I want it to make a difference in their lives. And I think that's, to me, that's success. Well, people can now get it in their hands. Uh, we, I, I want to congratulate you, Jordan, for um, one, having me, you know, uh, you know, in person to, to, to do this interview, but also uh, congratulate you for the book launch today. Um, for those listening, you can go ahead uh, to Amazon and uh, to, uh, to Doc G's website. I'll put it all in the show notes to download um, on Audible or buy the physical copy. I'm waiting for my copy to come in from Amazon, and I'm going to be driving back to Jordan so he can sign my book. Um, but uh, Jordan, if, uh, again, thank you for your time. And you know, please leave a, a note of, as far as where people can find you and also get the book as well. So. so the easiest way to find me and to learn about the book is to go to my personal website that's jordangrummet.com, J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T. There you can obviously order the book, learn about that, but there are also connections to the three types of content I produce. I used to be a medical blogger, so I wrote a medical blog from like 2005 to 2018, so there's a link there for that. I wrote a financial blog, which I've done much less of since 2018, Diversify. There's the links there for that. And what I do most of the time now, which is the Earn and Invest podcast, you can find it there, or you can go to earnandinvest.com. Either way, there are links for everything at both those pages, or just search on the name Jordan Grummet or Taking Stock, and you'll find it on Amazon. Thank you, Jordan, for uh, having me, and really appreciate your time. Thanks. It was a